Hello, and welcome to the Delaware Football Roundup by WVUD Sports. I'm Brandon Hovec, WVUD Sports Director and Executive Editor of The Review, the University of Delaware's student newspaper. Today on the Delaware Football Roundup, it's the second in our series of season preview podcast. Eight guests from across the CAA will join me on the show to discuss each of Delaware's opponents as we preview the conference entering the 2018 football season. It's obviously a big one for the Blue Hens, who entered the season ranked 15th in the National Stats FCS Top 25 poll and third in the annual CAA preseason poll. Last season, after losses down the stretch to Towson and Villanova in the final four weeks of the regular season, Delaware was left out of the playoffs and continued a drought that now dates back to 2010, the longest in program history. However, in year two of the Danny Rocco era, like in year one, there are many reasons for optimism. You know, we came here to uh, do something extraordinary with our program, and I think that uh, we uh, took a step forward, and we certainly remain on track. The offense returns all but three starters and is headlined by running back Kanai Kane, up the middle, a preseason All-CAA selection. The defense, though they lose NFL draftee Bilal Nichols, has NFL talent waiting in the wings at linebacker and safety and Troy Reader and Nasir Adderley. Adderley. There are he even more reasons to be optimistic, but a potent slate of opponents stand in the Blue Hens' way. Delaware will face three of the CAA's top four teams from a season ago. Elon, New Hampshire, and Stony Brook, and another team who starts the season in the top 25, Villanova. The season opener is a rare conference matchup with Rhode Island, a must-win in Week 1. To break it all down and get you set for the 2018 Blue Hens campaign, I'm lucky enough to have a loaded guest list of reporters, game broadcasters, and student journalists from across the CAA. On the show, I'll be joined by Stone Freeman, the sports director at WRIU, the student radio station for the University of Rhode Island, Matt Krause, the color commentator for the Elon Phoenix, Mike C., a reporter for the Portsmouth Herald in New Hampshire, Karuga Koinanja, the editor-in-chief of The Tower Light, the student newspaper of Towson University, Michael Kelly, a reporter for the Daily Gazette, who covers Albany football. Josh Carey, the play-by-play announcer for the Stony Brook Seawolves. And Nick France, a reporter for the Villanovan, Villanova University's student newspaper. But first, I'm joined by Kevin Tresselini of The News Journal and DelawareOnline.com. We went about 15 minutes going through all the major players and position groups on the Blue Hens team as we enter the 2018 football season. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kevin Tresolini. So I guess I kind of just start off. The first question I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of like the, the question everybody's been asking me and talking about, but, you know, coming into this year, it's a big season, obviously. Do you think this could be the year that the, you know, the playoff streak is snapped and that Delaware is back and that they're back in the picture and that they're, you know, maybe not quite to being an FCS powerhouse, but they're, you know, another step forward toward kind of regaining that status. Well, they're certainly on the right track, and they certainly, it certainly needs to be that season. Um, I, I think they have a chance to get even better in future years uh, under coach, under coach Rocco. Uh, he's brought in some good young players. 
Uh, but yeah, it's time. It's time. I mean, it's going to be tough because it's such a hard conference. You know, it's, it's so, it's so tough. Um, in that, in that conference to, you know, win a lot of games because it's so deep. But, um, yes, yes, it's time. It's time for Delaware to end this drought that now goes back to 2010. Uh, by far the longest playoff drought in Delaware history. It's been way too long. It's taken, it's taken too long. It should have ended last year. Uh, you know, they should not have lost, uh, those games to, at Towson and at Villanova. And they only needed to win one of them to get in the playoffs and they lost them both. Uh, but I think, I think they've, I think they've improved to the stand, to the standpoint that they can, uh, turn the corner and be better than they were last year. Um, I think the two keys are they got to be better at quarterback and they have to rebuild their offense or their uh, defensive line. And I think they've taken the steps to do those two things. We'll start with quarterback out of those two. A couple of days ago, you wrote a piece about Pat Kehoe after he started getting some first team reps when JP Caruso's uh, you know, injury kind of popped back up where he had shoulder surgery over the offseason. He's been kind of fighting that. Um, but you wrote about Pat Kehoe and the improvements that he's been able to make over the offseason and how he is definitely past Darius Wade and will have a chance to challenge for that number one spot. You know, in your mind right now, obviously there's still a lot of practice to go until that first game on Thursday, August 30th. But you know, is it a real possibility that Pat Kehoe is is the guy under center, or you know, still expecting to see some JP Caruso in there? I think I think we'll see both of them. I mean, right now Caruso is still the number one guy, and he's looked pretty good too. Uh, when you know when he's been healthy, there were two days last week where he could not throw the ball because he had pain in his shoulder from scar tissue. Uh, but he has been feeling better since then. Uh, and, um, he, he's been, he's been looking pretty good. Pat Keogh has been looking very good and it's a heck of a competition. Um, and that's why I think they'll both play, um, you know, especially early. I mean, it is, it is a big game because they open with a conference game. So, um, it's not like you can kind of work your way into this thing. Um, you know, they got a must win situation in that first game. You can't lose to Rhode Island. Uh, so, um, I think, I think it's still, I think it's still, uh, JP Caruso's, uh, job to lose, but Pat, uh, but Pat Kehoe is certainly pushing him, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see, uh, both of them. Are you at all surprised with the progress, or I guess maybe lack there of, from Darius Wade, or were you not maybe quite as high on him as, some fans maybe were when he transferred from Boston College yeah, here. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, I, you know, he certainly came with with a great reputation. I mean, I saw him in high school as a four-year starter in Middletown, you know, really threw the ball well um, on some really good teams. You know, he had he, you know, he had a guy to throw to who's now in the NFL, Chris Godwin, which certainly right. helped. But, but um, and, you know, he went to Boston College and cracked their lineup pretty early in his career, you know, started some games up there, had a knee injury that set him back, um, but started some games, played a lot of games. Uh, so I, yeah, I was a little surprised that, that he didn't come in here and uh, become a more formidable uh, competitor for the starting position. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I mean, the reason why is because he hasn't he hasn't looked uh, as as good, played as well, executed as well as the other guys. Um, what's the reason for that? Uh, is it lack of preparation on his part, lack of um, determination on his part? 
uh, I don't know. Uh, but I think you have to give more credit to the other guys, uh, JP and Pat Kehoe, for really, really kind of going after it themselves. Um, you know, knowing that, 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 that Darius came in and, and, and had some credentials and, you know, they knew that they had to pick it up and keep pushing. And I think, I think Pat Keogh has really benefited now from the coaching staff that's been in place for a year, just the confidence he's gotten from those guys and, and the positive, the positive coaching he's gotten from those guys as well. With the running back group moving on to the next position group on the offense, it seems like there's a new guy in there every couple of months, either transferring in or kind of making a leap and getting more and more playing time. As a whole, what do you expect to see from what's now really crowded backfield, but you know a lot of talent in the, that backfield as well? That's a heck of well. a group. Yeah, that's a that's a that's really a heck of a, a heck of a running back uh, group that they got back there. And you know, I I had put in my in my story my twelve wishes column that I wrote when practice started that I you know I'd love to see some situations where because they have so many good backs that 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 they have some formations where there's more than one back uh, in the backfield and they have, you know, they, and they have done some of that, but uh, yeah, they've looked really good. You know, can I Kane uh, looks, looks faster and, and stronger and better, uh, you know, a year into it. Uh, Corey Spruill now a sophomore looks really good. You know, Kareem Williams is a fifth year senior now, and I'm sure he'd like to like to, um, you know, go out strong and, uh, um, the, the interesting guy to watch um, because because we haven't seen him before is um, is number thirty three uh, Dejan Lee. He's the uh, the U.S. Military Academy transfer who was ineligible last year. Right. Um, I'm, I'm not sure yet. I have to check with Danny. I don't I don't I don't know if Andre Robinson, the Penn State transfer, is eligible yet. Uh, he has been practicing. I'm not sure if he's eligible yet. Um, but you know whether or not he is or not that doesn't matter right now i mean those other four guys are pretty darn good yeah and um i, I mean i you know obviously you can you, you know you can go from being deep to not being deep to not being deep pretty quickly right only takes a couple of injuries uh but uh that's 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 a really good crew they have uh back there one of the more talked about figures on this Delaware team the past couple of years has been Joe Walker who now this off season makes the complete transition Away from the quarterback position to being a wide receiver, but you know could also be seen in a couple other roles with this team. I thought last year, especially that game against Maine, he looked like the most athletic, if not one of the most athletic guys on the offense. What are you expecting to see from him now that he's transitioned to wide receiver? It's going to be it's going to be fun to see what they do, and you know, and they have been they have been putting in some interesting plays uh, with him. Um, you know, making use of the of the many skills he has and some of the skills he's shown and the fact that he was a quarterback. So um, even though he's a wide receiver uh, now, um, you know, don't be surprised if if you see him taking some snaps, um, which is, you know, which is great. I, you know, they've they're they're wisely going to make use of of Joe's uh, athletic abilities um, as he as he showed up there at Maine last year when he had 165 all-purpose yards, almost all of them in the first half alone, uh, you know when he was still kind of new at some of the things he was doing. Um, so that's going to be it's going to be fun to see. And and the and the good thing is in terms of him being a wide receiver, and this goes for the other wide receivers too, uh, Vinny Papali, Jamie Jarman, the other guys. You know they have I think they have some quarterbacks now who can get him the ball. Um, you know Joe Joe was kind of a good passer but an inconsistent passer last year. 
you know, JP was kind of struggling with the shoulder. Um, so I think, I just think they've got some better passing now in terms of getting the ball to the wide receivers. So that, you know, so that should help all those guys. Off the top, the other position group that you mentioned that is losing a lot, and by a lot, we mean all three starters along the line, is the D-line. Um, but you wrote a story a couple days ago about a few transfers that have come in and given the Blue Hens a boost, um, because not only did Bilal Nichols, Blaine Woodson, and John Nassib graduate, but the team has been without uh, Cam Kitchen and Sal Morrow, who are expected to be starters because of injury. Uh, so Caleb Ashworth and Frank Burton are two of many guys who have kind of stepped up into that role and will have to try to replace those big names. What are your expectations for those two in particular and then the D-line as the whole as a whole? Yeah, I think I think it'll be okay. Um, you know, the the depth is so important in the defensive line. Uh they like to uh you know, run guys in and out of there and the guys you run in and out of there have to be able to hold their ground and get where they need to go. Um in 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 Caleb Ashworth, you, you know, you have a guy who started for Cincinnati as a redshirt freshman. Uh, they've been impressed with him. Frank Burton, those of us who saw him play as a high school guy at William Penn, were impressed by the things he did there. Um, he transferred from Ball State, where he mainly just played special teams. Uh, but so far, he looks like he's a guy who can definitely contribute there. And then they have a bunch of other guys. Um, Cam Kitchen is now back practicing. Okay. So that's a good sign. Um, yeah, they're still kind of working him back in there. Uh, Sal Morrow is not practicing yet. Uh, he's still got, he's still got a little ways to go, but we'll be seeing him before too long. So hopefully they'll get everybody back in there healthy and they've, you know, they've got some depth. They have another, uh, young man, Dominic Cavado, um, who hurt his knee in camp and he's going to be out another four or five weeks, I guess, and it'll help when he gets back in there. But, you know, they got a lot of bodies that are kind of moving in and out of there. Brandon Hall transfer from a junior college in in uh in California has kind of been in and out. Um Brandon Nixon, kid from Cape Penlopen High School in Delaware, has been getting some looks in there. Um fifth year transfer uh um from, from St. Francis um has been getting uh some playing time in there. So they're just trying guys out and seeing who can who can do the job and obviously huge shoes to fill there with Bilal and Blaine, you know, guys who played a lot of games and uh, you know, John Nassib stepped in last year after Cam got hurt and they didn't lose a beat there as good as he was. So um, a lot of responsibility for those guys. You know, I mean, everybody talks about how good this defense is going to be. Well, that group has to step up because as good as those, you know, those guys in the back are, the linebackers and D-backs, if, if, the front, if the front guys in the front don't hold up, it's going to make it a lot tougher for them. So these guys really need to step up. And the indication so far is that they have the potential. Uh, the additions of Ashworth and Burton in particular um, uh, make, that, make that seem possible. Are there any other players or position groups that have stuck out to you in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, a, a, a couple areas that have, you know, kind of been fun to watch. Uh, Joey Carter, the young man from Texas who was, you know, kind of a second, third level receiver last year. Right. Uh, has been switched to safety. And he's kind of been stepping in a little bit this week for Nasir Adderley, who's who's a little banged up uh, with a hamstring. And Joey's been running with the number ones this week, which is really interesting. So, you know, that's that's you know been 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 kind of interesting to see um on the offensive line which i think they have some i i think they have some nice depth there um you know you got a couple guys who who uh have started um as as guards 
Um, you have uh, you have Mario Farinella, who's kind of yep. had a long road back from some foot injuries of his own. You also have Connor Lutz, who started last year uh, all season at guard. Um, but you have the young man who's a, who's a transfer from Dell State of all places, Chuka. Um, as uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to even try to pronounce his, <laughs> his last name. I'll spell it easy. Yes, yeah, I, I see it in my head, but I can't help yeah, you out Chuka. there. <laughs> luckily, luckily, his first name is easy to say, Chuka. Uh, and um, he, he, the, the, the three guards have kind of been rotating in and out. So that's, you know, that's good that they got a little bit of depth there. Um, and and they've been starting a redshirt freshman um, all year at, at one of the tackle spots. He's been out there every practice at number one, David Kroll. Yep. So they obviously like him. So it's 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 it's, it's kind of been fun to watch the uh, you know the offensive line. And everybody knows how good Delaware's linebackers are. You got Buck Jones now, the Hodgson grad, playing outside after moving from safety. You yep. got the two inside guys, Charles Bell, back from his uh, fractured back. And Troy Reader, uh, the Penn State transfer, Sally's grad, who um, is probably going to get a shot at the NFL next year. Um, and then you got Colby Reader on the outside, who has been slowed by some back injuries, hasn't always practiced, but you know that's that's a great crew of linebackers right there. Behind them, you've got freshmen, and that sounds kind of scary, but these guys are pretty good. Um, and it's really going to be kind of fun to watch how those guys develop and practice. The leader of the group is Kedrick Whitehead from Middletown High School. Um, he's he's kind of been backing up Buck at that one outside spot where you really got to move. You really got to track some guys down. You got to be all over the field. And they really look at him as a guy um, who could be Buck's heir apparent at that outside linebacker spot. Very active position. Got to cover a lot of ground. You got to make a lot of plays. Um but they really like Kedrick out there and uh, several other uh, freshman uh, linebackers have, have, have been running with the twos and uh, uh, look, you know, look like they have solid features at Delaware is as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a lot of fun to watch preseason camp. Um, but you know, we got, we got to be satisfied with that right now because the first game's still a couple weeks away. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick on the guards. Were you at all surprised to see, Farnell on the CAA preseason team. Oh, of course I was. Yeah, because he didn't really. Yeah, hasn't played know, he, a lot. He, he didn't. He didn't start last year. Uh, he got switched over to defense in the middle of last year for a couple of weeks. So I was shocked. Yeah. Um. And and the way Coach Rocco explained it was was uh you know he said he said that coaches can nominate guys and I, so that means Danny nominated him and then the coaches vote and coaches thought enough of Farinella to vote him as a as a, a preseason all-conference guy and you remember i mean this is a guy who did you know he started a game as a redshirt freshman at north carolina in 2015 he started the 2016 opener as a redshirt sophomore and then he got hurt and he hasn't started a game since so he's obviously got a reputation you know he, he, people obviously think highly of him so um you know the hens hope he can stay healthy and 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 help up front and uh if he can that would that would that would be that would be very beneficial definitely yeah, i was i was surprised to see him and kane there but especially um far just because he hasn't played a whole lot I think oh be somebody i was shocked else. yeah yeah i was shocked Thanks to Tress for joining me on the Delaware Football Roundup. You can find his work in the pages of the News Journal or on DelawareOnline.com. 
and you can follow him on Twitter at Kevin Tresselini. Delaware opens the season Thursday, August 30th against the University of Rhode Island. It's the first time the Hens will start their season with the CAA opponent since 2007, when Delaware defeated William & Mary 49-31 behind the arm of Joe Flacco. The Hens have not played Rhode Island since 2015, with the Rams taking that one in shutout fashion 20 to nothing. But it's been tough sledding for head coach Jim Fleming since he took over the program at Rhode Island in December 2013. Coming off a three-win season, Rhode Island finished last in the CAA preseason poll, and the Rams have not had a season over 500 since 2001. Stone Freeman is the sports director for 90.3 WRIU, Rhode Island's student radio station. I really enjoyed my talk with him as we compared notes on how we do things here at WVUD compared to what they do up there at WRIU, and I trust you'll enjoy this conversation. He had a lot of good insight into Rhode Island as they try to turn the book and turn the page to being at least an average CAA team, maybe not quite to contender status just yet. Here's my conversation with Stone Freeman of WRIU on the Rhode Island Rams. You know, I don't know a whole lot about Rhode Island since the Blue Hens haven't played them the last two years. Oh, yeah, I hear it. Um, but, you know, just to kind of start off, you know, this team picked 12th in the CAA preseason poll. Not the position, obviously, you want to be in. Um, kind of what's your outlook for this season? What are you expecting from this team coming into 2018? I think this team, uh, this Jim Fleming, the head coach, I guess I should start with him. Um, this is his fifth year as the head coach. So now, right. again, very similar storyline to last year in terms of um, the rebuild kind of people would expect to be over, right? You kind of expect them that by now it's all of Fleming's guys. There's some type of consistency there. They bought into the new culture. And to a certain extent, I think a lot of that is true. Um, but however, though, there is a, there is this side of Rhode Island that they you know, they haven't been over 500 since 2000. So they've been through coaching decisions before and new head coaches and it's taken longer than five years. But this year, I really think when I say breakout year, I don't mean playoffs. I don't mean necessarily even over 500, but I fully expect Rhode Island to be in the middle of the pack. And I know to most people, that's not a breakout season. But again, when you haven't been above 500 since 2001, you know, to win five games, potentially six games, and be a game over 500 is leaps and bounds better than expected. So I fully expect Rhode Island to be competitive this year. They were last year; they had three wins, and they also left three other uh, wins really out on the on the field and lost them. They were up at, at our instant rival in Brown University. They were up there 14 to three at the half and, and lost. Uh, their one FBS opponent was Central Michigan, the bye game to start the season, right. and our, our kicker, C.J. Carrick, missed a field goal to win it in triple overtime, and Central Michigan ends up winning that game. Uh, and then they were down by 1.35-34 on the final drive against Elon, who's the number 14 team in the country at the time last year, at home in front of a great crowd. And uh, Jim Fleming decided to throw the ball. Javon Lawson got picked off with 30 seconds left instead of kicking a field goal to win it. So there, were, there was a whole lot of different uh, situations that had happened last year that really gives you optimism. Uh, they lose a lot of their backfield. Uh, their running backs are, are kind of running back by committee right now, but they return a lot. A lot of the position groups are the strongest they've been since Jim Fleming got there. So I think this year really is breakout in terms of they're going to do things that Rhode Island football doesn't normally do, and that's at least win five games. That's a, that's where I would have them right now. So my expectations, though, is for them to be competitive in games, uh, and some of those games that could have went either way last year, hopefully they come out on the winning end of them this year. One of the many returner, returning starters for this team is quarterback Jaywan Lawson. Uh, last year, 
came over as a transfer, started for most of the season for Rhode Island. You know, what did you see from him in his first season at quarterback, and what are you expecting and maybe some things he can improve upon as he likely enters his second year as the starting quarterback for Rhode Island? Yeah, and, and, and not to correct you at all because it's kind of confusing, especially from the outside looking in. But Jawan, believe it or not, didn't start last year as the starter. It was Tyler Harris, who was another uh, transfer quarterback, and a very similar storyline to Jawan. Came from an FBS program. Harris came from UCF, uh, which, of course, would end up going undefeated this year at the FBS level. And uh, Jawan came from New Mexico. And Jawan is more of a mobile, uh, you know, when I say triple threat, he can definitely use the, 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 the handoff to his, the backfield to his advantage. Uh, he can also sling the ball. He's more, in my opinion, of a of a true FCS quarterback, a guy that if the pocket collapses, he can escape. Uh, and I think that's really important for this year. But just just to recap what happened last year, yeah, yeah. Harris was the starter for about. I want to say the first four or five games, uh, and and he wasn't bad. Like I said, he beat Harvard for us, which was a huge win, seventeen to ten at Mead Stadium. The second game at home on the year kind of brought some buzz to the program. At the time, it made them one and two, so it was okay. We're a game now away at Brown again. That game they left out on the table. They win that one. Now they're two and two. So Harris didn't do a bad job. He just threw a lot of interceptions. And uh, to most people, that's a negative. To me, as a URI football uh, follower, you know, so it's been really involved in the program since I got here four years ago. I thought that was, if anything, I don't want to say a good thing, but it was, believe it or not, a small sign of optimism because it showed he wasn't afraid to throw the ball. So we were throwing the ball more. Uh, we had Harold Cooper and TJ Anderson, who were both seniors in the backfield, and the offense put up 20-plus points per game for the first time, again, in the Jim Fleming era. So it was a little bit of an optimistic break, but eventually you kind of get tired of that, right? There's too many turnovers being created, and Juwan came in and did a decent job, and, and, and I won't – praise him so much again because from the outside looking in there weren't wins being produced so it's kind of tough uh to truly claim that he he's been the perfect fit for the job but again the storylines that people don't talk about that elon game he makes one mistake the whole game most quarterbacks can make one or two mistakes all game and their defense will keep them in it he made one mistake all game and it was the interception at the end of the game um with 30 seconds left that's it other than that he played a nearly perfect game he was mobile he threw the ball well and the wide receiving cores really helped him out too so this year i expect they haven't named a starter officially okay. um, i've been down to training camp a couple times and the storyline is kind of juan's running with the with the first team tyler harris is running with the second team but you can kind of imply that juan will get the start based on his numbers last year i think they're pretty good at at, at Offensive line, I think the offensive line will be one of the best in the CAA, believe it or not. I think the the receivers, they don't lose any receivers from last year. Uh, And I think that's all going to come together to help Juwan ideally have have a pretty good year this year. Again, being competitive and staying in games. I do want to come back to the receiver group in a couple minutes. But first, uh, I want to ask you this. Between Harris and Lawson last season, you mentioned that Lawson, more of a mobile quarterback, uh, less of a downfield passer compared to Harris, at least maybe less risk, more risk adverse. You know, how did Rhode Island's offense, if at all, change when they made the quarterback switch? And kind of second part of that question, when Delaware faces Rhode Island week one, especially if it's Lawson under center, what will that offense look like? You know, is it a team that will run some read option, run with the quarterback? Will they be throwing the ball? down the field or more quick slant screen passes what can we expect to see that offense look like especially if it is Lawson who comes away with the job 
Sure. I think it's natural. And I mean, you can look at it at the professional level too, you know, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not, not, not making any comparisons between Lawson and Russell Wilson, more or less with the playbook style. When you have a mobile quarterback, your playbook changes. You can all of a sudden, you know, it completely opens up what you want to do. You can run the ball. You can do those read options. I don't know traditionally how much you're going to see of, you know, trickery plays and, and end rounds and things of that nature. I think it's more of, of, using the wide receivers to your advantage. They have a uh, wide receiver in Aaron Parker, who's a preseason all CAA nomination yeah. at wide receiver. He's a great athlete. I think that's going to help him out. Um, and I think by having guys like that, Kyrie Denny is a slot guy, shorter, only about, you know, five ten, but he's quick and he's fast. You can use them to your advantage and run those, you know, run screen passes, bubble screen slants. You don't have to go deep every time. Uh, and I think Tyler Harris was a great fit at quarterback. Um, I think he just kind of got rushed into it. There was a lot of hype, believe it or not. And wow, we have a kid from UCF that, that that's coming in and, and he performed well in training camp. And I'm not knocking Tyler in any means of the imagination, but I just think the playbook opens up so more, when, so much more when you have a mobile quarterback. Real quick, before we go to the defensive side of the ball, sure. defensively, where is this team the strongest and where are they most vulnerable? You said on offense? Defense. Defense, defense. Okay, defense, I think the strongest position group uh, is probably the defensive line. It's built, again, with a lot of guys that have been here for a long time, some longevity. Um, they got Brandon Gennetti, again, who's the first team CAA uh, preseason nod. Uh, big guy, he's going to play inside, you know, that, that guard position. The tackles are long. Uh, Tez Wilson, he's going into his senior year. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys that, that when he walks past you, you recognize him. He's a big guy, but he's built. And, and I think that defense front, they got another guy, LB Mack the third that started off really as that guy that was running in and out whenever somebody needed a break. And now he's going into his junior year in the blink of an eye and he's strong. He's built same thing like Tez Wilson. So I think their front four is going to be strong. I think their biggest vulnerability is their linebacking core, though. I think the secondary is pretty good, too, so I don't want to go unnoticed there. Um, I think it has some holes, but I think the first-team secondary is going to be pr- pretty darn strong. But I think the linebacking core is really where there's a couple questions that lie. They have uh, not so much issues, but more of you don't have that longevity there. You lost your play caller two years ago in Adam Parker, not to be mistaken with Aaron Parker. Adam Parker was uh, in the first three years that Jim Fleming was here again, when wins were hard to come by, when optimism was hard to come by. He was an all CAA type player. He was a guy that called the plays. He was a great player. Uh, and he, he graduates. So you got to move on from him. And last year it took a step back. And now this year it's, do we jump forward or do we, do we stay in that, that, that pattern? They got some good guys there though. They got Nas Jones who moved over from a cornerback into a linebacking role, kind of a little bit more of an athletic look at linebacker. And I don't know if it's a vulnerability as much as it's, I just don't think it's up to par with the defensive line in the secondary yet. But again, if the middle of your defense is your weak point, uh, I guess if there's an area you want weak, it's that one because last year the secondary gave up some long balls and, and I keep forgetting the kid's name, but there's a wide out on Stony Brook that torched Rhode Island. Uh, and, and I come back to that game because that was the first home game of the year. It was the second game of the year when, when they had just uh, almost beat Central Michigan. There was a packed house at Mead Stadium, and you really want to win like that. And I think they end up losing 38-17 again to your eyes. That looks like a blowout, but it's really – if you take away one touchdown from the kid that had two touchdowns and you kind of play nitpicky game here, which which is 
not ideal, but it happens. It looks like it could have been a little closer. So I think the linebacking core is definitely the vulnerability, the vulnerable part, but I think the defensive line is going to be a, a real big problem for some of these uh, offensive lines in the CAA. This year, which is this is kind of rare, but the first game of the season for these teams is a CAA matchup, Rhode Island versus Delaware, Thursday, August 30th, which will be here just before you know it, a couple of days from when we're recording this now on August 8th. Um, you know, being at camp, if you have gotten a sense of the approach to that game or having a CAA game in general that early in the season, what is it for Rhode Island? You know, how, how do they view having to start right off the bat being judged against a conference opponent? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of that it's a very cliche mindset. It's what most teams would face. And it's, you know, not that you can when the regular season rolls around, whether it's an FBS buy game, whether it's just a non-conference Ivy League game or a CAA game, you want to get a win. Right. But you're right. There are there there are certain stipulations about getting a win on the road at the CAA level right away off the bat. And I think Rhode Island knows that that's a thing, right? I think they're yeah. very conscious of the fact that they're going into a top 25 team's home venue. Um, but what Jim Fleming has always kind of preached in, in an indirect way, and I say that because when you ask him questions, especially during the rough parts of URI football, you know, it might be uh, the blowout to JMU a couple of years ago or last year's loss to JMU at home, 38-7. There were certain different, or 38-3, there were certain different times where Rhode Island didn't perform well at all. And when you talk to Coach Fleming about it, it's a positive mindset in terms of he's not happy that they just got blown out. But he knew that his team, um, he truthfully believes that his team can win games, right? At least that's what he's portraying to people. And I think that's a strong mindset to have, especially when you have a CAA um, opponent first step. It, it should be, we get it, we're Rhode Island, there's some question marks here. But the fact that we were pick, picked last does not justify where we're going to be at the end of the season. It's motivation to, to, to win, and it starts on that game one. You don't want to make mistakes at any game, and I think that's what Jim Fleming's kind of preaching right now is it doesn't matter who's out there, what the first game is. You have to play pretty much a perfect game to beat some of these teams, and you got to start fresh right off the bat at Delaware. It's a tough matchup, but it's an opportunity before anything else. To get a CAA win, your first one of the year, and this is for Delaware too, even though it's Rhode Island that's picked to finish last, an opportunity to win a conference game pretty much before the square even starts in August, that's a huge opportunity for both squads. And I think for Rhode Island, too, they've really cemented in that, that they can beat anybody. Whether they can or not, they believe and their coaching staff believes that they're going to prepare enough to try to beat and to be able to beat every team that goes out on the field against them. So it's going to be a tough battle. Uh, I know they're busting down there, so that kind of comes into the situation, too. They bust down the night before. They leave right after the conclusion of the game. But I'm sure that bus ride will be a hell of a lot sweeter if they can get the victory against the Blue Hens. But it's not going to be easy. Uh, I haven't done much research on you guys, but I do. I saw the preseason poll, and, and I read about some of the, the snap counts that are coming back, and 60% of the offense, 60% of the defense. It's a tough task for Rhode Island, but but I think uh, it, it's a good tough task because if they can get that victory, a CAA win off the bat, in my opinion, in terms of the longevity of the season, uh, it might be a little bit more important than getting a win over uh, a by-game opponent, you know. Right. One of the things that here at the University of Delaware, we discussed a lot over the course of the last two or three years, really until 
Danny Rocco got here and turned the team around last year where they had their first season over 500 for the last two or three years um, was that you know fan attitude and especially among students was particularly down, especially in the seasons where Delaware was back-to-back four and seven and eventually led to the firing of their previous head coach, Dave Brock. I'm curious if you can kind of describe what the general student attitude or mindset is toward this team that has obviously struggled over the past two years, but it seems that there is some optimism amongst those covering it. I'm wondering if that translates to the to the student body and what their attitude slash mindset is toward this team heading into the season. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm, what, how I'll answer this one is I'll, I'll tweak the question a bit and I'll explain it why I'm tweaking it in a second. But I think it's a university-wide, uh, athletic-wide mindset that's changing, not just football. I think it's because uh, our basketball team has grabbed headlines over the past couple of years with two trips to the NCAA tournament. And where you normally would lose your head coach and kind of, uh, with Dan Hurley departing for UConn, you kind of lose your head coach and lose momentum. Everybody's still bought in around here, and I think that's where it starts. It starts with the success of the basketball team, and then it goes into donorship going up at different levels of the game, and that's a big step. And now football all of a sudden, with the way people are talking about it, I mean, students get in for free on game day. Uh, Rhode Island is, is known to have a, a pretty good social life environment experience at the university, and I think that contributes a lot to it. And And when you start to see things change, even if you don't want to go there for football, you're going to go there to enjoy and to, and, to, and to have a good time on Saturday morning. I think that's what's happening is all these different things, the basketball team success, the university's um, growing. It, there, there, there seems to always be a crane on campus. There's mm-hmm. a lot of hype around the university as a whole, and football is getting a piece of that pie. And I say that because this morning, again, like, like you mentioned earlier, we're recording this on August 8th, but this morning the university uh, – accepted two donations of a million dollars a piece from two um, donors to finally get turf and lights at Mead Stadium uh, in Kingston. I think that's a huge step. So whether it's fans, whether it's donors, it seems like people are not so much hyping them up, but just seem to care a little bit more. And all of a sudden, football games aren't a waste of time on Saturday morning. You know, on homecoming weekend, you get 7,000 fans, but also on the home opener, you get 5,000 fans. And for URI football, that that's a big step. That's a huge step to, to not have um, glowing holes in attendance. You know, to, to have people showing up on game day is important. And I, and I think the community is also bought in Kingston, where uh, URI lies, is, is 20 minutes from the beach, 40 minutes from Providence. So it's kind of in this in this middle ground where it's kind of cool. It's relaxed. There's not so much going on. Uh, and then you get the beaches right there. So it's it's an effortless mindset that I think people around Rhode Island are starting to buy into, too. You're starting to get people that are not affiliated with URI, are not alumni, are not season ticket holders that all of a sudden use it as an opportunity to go out and, and experience it. So I think that's all important. I think that's why football is starting to get donorship and football is starting to get bigger crowds is because people are just buying in to the university as a whole. I think it's growing, uh, and, and that's kind of why I tweak your question a bit, because it's not so much about football drawing crowds. It's about the university drawing crowds and people being bought in. So I think I think it's a very optimistic time for the entire university, and football is reaping the benefits uh, right now going into the 2018-19 school year. I'd like to thank Stone Freeman for joining me on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Stone P. Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. 
And we now welcome in our very own Nick Canella to discuss the Richmond Spiders. Unfortunately, we were unable to get someone from Richmond in time to join our podcast. But in order to get this out on time, Nick has done his homework on Richmond and he's ready to break down Russ Huseman's squad as they enter their second year in the post-Danny Rocco era when the Blue Hens make their trip to Richmond on October 6th. It'll be Rocco's return, his first time back in Richmond since leaving the Spiders before last season. Nick, it's an interesting time for Richmond, and it'll be a close game there in Delaware, or excuse me, in uh, Virginia last year. Delaware had one of their signature wins, one of their staple wins over the Spiders, but that team's going to be looking a little bit different. Uh, it was a tough team last year for the Blue Hens to get over. It'll have a new look, a different face coming into 2018. I think the Blue Hens themselves are even looking different. They're looking more energized. And with the Richmond Spiders losing their starting quarterback, Kyle Lawletta, to the NFL after being picked by the Giants in the fourth round, I think it's tough for them to sustain that high passing uh, attack offense that we saw last year. I mean, they do have their returning running back, Xavier Goodall, um, coming back, who had about 500 yards on the ground. But Kyle Lalletta with 281 completions, over 3,500 yards passing, and 28 total touchdowns. I mean, it's hard to replace a guy's numbers like that. Yeah, Lalletta now with the New York Giants. I actually saw him a couple of nights ago in a preseason game. He was one of the better quarterbacks the CAA has seen in the past couple of years. And he definitely showed it in that double overtime game against Delaware that the Hens were able to pull out here in Newark. When you look elsewhere on the offense, you mentioned the running back group. Are there any other skill guys that are returning to this team post Lalletta that will be looked on as a source of leadership or as a source of production to replace part of what Kyle Lalletta had brought this team? Well, coming out of camps and a lot of the scrimmages, a lot of the articles and even the coaches are talking about about this receiving group and how much depth they have and just how much skill and talent there is, um, especially coming back from last year. They have uh, Brissett, Wilkins, and Simpson, all three players who went over 800 receiving yards last year, um, which is just incredible for them to have. So they're just definitely leaders on this offense um, that can just step up for this group and just really take any secondary and just push them to the brink. I mean, they've done an incredible job just last year, just being able to find open space. And I think that's something Delaware secondary definitely has to watch out for. Looking at the defensive side of the ball, where do you see the strengths of this unit and perhaps some weaknesses? The strength of this unit is their pass rushing ability. I mean, last year we saw them just get to the quarterback, just being able to just bull rush the lines and just as quick as possible, get to the quarterback, get him down. And it really affected teams last year, even affected where uh, Delaware in their game last year at points. I mean, their lead on the defensive line is Andrew Clyde, who is a first team all CAA player and all American. He's just a leader on this defense and he's looking to step up, especially when this defense has eight returning starters from last year, they're looking to really hold it down and not give up, um, points this year, and I can see them doing it. Last year, Richmond was one of the many CAA teams to be in the FCS Stats Top 25 poll for much of the season. They eventually fell out um, around the time that Delaware defeated them in the middle of the season. 
coming into this year, they're not in the stats FCS top 25. They've been put behind in many, if not all, polls. James Madison, Elon, New Hampshire, Delaware, and Villanova. Do you think that perhaps some of the consensus rankers are sleeping a little bit on this team, a team that in the past few seasons has been one of the better teams, especially going back to the Danny Rocco era where they were not below 500 once in his five years there? I think they are not really being slept on because of what they had last year being six and five with having Wildletta at quarterback. Now okay. without him, it's kind of hard to see them go above that range. But they are getting a lot of starters and bringing a ton of experience with them, which is great. It's just hard to see them going above that 6-5 and five record, especially with having such a great quarterback and leader on that team before. All right. Thank you very much, Nick. You're welcome, Brandon. And now we'll go to Delaware's third CAA opponent of the season, Elon. Delaware will face the Phoenix for just the third time in program history on October 13th in Newark on Parents and Family Weekend. Last season, under first-year head coach Kurt Signetti, the Elon Phoenix posted their best season since joining the CAA in 2014. The Phoenix regular season record of 8-3 and 6-2 in conference play earned them their second-ever postseason appearance. Led by Conference Rookie of the Year, quarterback Davis Cheek, and a stable of running backs, Elon ranks among the best in the CAA, placing 5th in the conference preseason poll and 12th in the National Stats FCS Top 25 poll. Matt Krause, the color commentator for Elon Phoenix Football, joins me now on the Delaware Football Roundup. Alright, so let's first start with last season for Elon. Obviously a big year for the team made their second-ever postseason appearance, a six-win improvement from the year before under first-year head coach Kurt Signetti. Can you kind of put into words what that meant to the school having that huge improvement last year and, you know, what types of factors went into that big jump from 2016 to 2017? Well, Brandon, I think it's a matter of uh, changing the culture. You know, a lot of the talent from last season's team was either returning talent or very young, true freshman talent. And it was a matter of believing that this group could compete in the CAA, something that they really hadn't done their first few seasons. And uh, Kurt Signetti really came in, gave everybody returning and new a fresh start. And once the wins started to come, Elon won a couple of close games and non-conference play, and then it really started to snowball from there. That sense of confidence grew and grew as the season went along. And as a result, it totally revitalized fan interest on the campus. Uh, Crowds up in the 10,000 range for family weekend and homecoming. Road Stadium felt alive once again. And that was something that had really been lacking the first couple of years in the CAA was fan interest uh, among the student body, especially for the home games. But it really revitalized that interest in the 2017 season. And folks all of a sudden had something to be very proud of that product that Elon put on the field and that momentum has carried over into 2018. There's a lot of folks that are very excited about the upcoming season. Do you feel as though after last season, Elon has kind of gone over the the hump to now being a team that can be competitive year in, year out in the CAA where that maybe wasn't the case, especially when they first came into the league a couple of years ago? Absolutely. It's a case of 
you know, you have to win to be able to know that you can win, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, everybody can be told, okay, you're talented. You've gotten the opportunity to play in the best conference in the FCS, but the matter of putting it all together and being able to win ball games is something that kind of takes you to the next level. And that's the experience that Elon got last year because not only was the Phoenix winning games, the Phoenix was winning close games. They were finding ways to close out opponents, winning tough games, both at home and in challenging road environments. And that's something that they've got that confidence going into this season. And it's now a matter of, you know, Elon was picked fifth in the CAA preseason poll. And this group believes that's too low. They now have a chip on their shoulder as if to say, we're better than a fifth place predicted finish. We're going to go out and prove it here in 2018. Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask you about. Yesterday, we had the Stats FCS Top 25 come out a few weeks ago. Obviously, the CAA preseason poll came out, and Elon, as you said, picked fifth below teams like Delaware that they finished above last year. Uh, but in the FCS Top 25, picked 12th nationally, which would be third among CAA teams behind just JMU and New Hampshire. What were your impressions of Elon's ranking? You know, did you feel personally that that was too high or too low or appropriate in both of those polls? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think in the preseason poll for the CAA, I thought that was a bit low. Um, Obviously, James Madison is the cream of the crop. They're the gold standard that everybody's chasing. New Hampshire's talented. They've got that long playoff streak. You guys in Newark have a lot of talent coming back and that chip on your shoulder from a team that finished one win away from a playoff berth last season. And then Stony Brook, though, they did lose some talent in the backfield and on the defensive side of the football, playing against kind of a lighter schedule last season, finishing second in the league. Thought that the Phoenix would be maybe a spot higher than fifth, uh, whether that was above Delaware or above Stony Brook, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I, I see how it shook out with the voting and Elon placed fifth in the preseason poll. Thought they could have been fourth, um, but not much higher than that. So I, I wasn't super surprised about the placement kind of in that second tier behind James Madison or New Hampshire, if you will. Right. But I did think fifth was probably a spot too low. As for the top 25, I think 12th is maybe a little bit high. I was surprised to see the Phoenix come in at number 12 yesterday. I was expecting more a 16 or 17 somewhere in that department uh, because you know, even though it was a great turnaround season for the Phoenix last year and they're bringing back 18 starters into this season, Elon is on a three-game losing streak. You know, Those eight wins came after the season opening loss to Toledo and then a couple of tough losses against New Hampshire and James Madison to close the regular season. And then the one-point heartbreaker against Furman in the postseason. You know, Elon doesn't have the momentum of winning down the stretch at the very end of last season. So I was kind of surprised uh, that Elon was picked as high as number 12. But uh, it shows, as we talked about, the uh, potential for the Phoenix to be a competitor in this conference. And they've caught uh, the eyes of the national pundits across the FCS. So, uh Hopefully we'll see Elon live up to those expectations being picked 12th in the nation. You mentioned there a moment ago this team has a lot of returning starters. Uh, first on the offensive side of the ball, where do you see Elon's greatest strength, whether it's you know a certain player or a position group that stands out to you? 
What really stands out to me on the offensive side of the football uh, is the run game, both up front on the offensive line and obviously the talent in the backfield. You know, Elon had one of the nation's leading rushers in Malcolm Summers, who lit the world on fire figuratively in the first half of last season. He rushed for 294 yards in an upset win at number six, Richmond, and then followed that up with a strong performance against Albany and had a good game against William and Mary. But it was late in the fourth quarter of that William and Mary game that Summers suffered a leg injury and was out for the rest of the season. But Elon really didn't skip a beat in the run game after Summers went down because of a uh, duo of underclassmen running backs to Sean McNair, who's now a junior, Breland Cyphers, who's now a sophomore. McNair went for a career best on the ground against Rhode Island in the first game after Summers' injury. So, you know, it's a very talented group. And now that Malcolm Summers is back and is expected to be pretty close, if not at full health for the season opener at South Florida, you've got three proven commodities at the running back position that'll pose challenges for opposing defenses all season long because you've got guys that you can bring in that are going to be fresh. And then a run game really is only as good as the offensive line that is in front of it, the ability to block opposing defenses. And Elon has five veterans returning on the offensive line. Um, They did lose one starter up there. And Ikenna Wokeji signed a free agent deal uh, with the Pittsburgh Steelers in the offseason. But they've got uh, seniors in Alex Higgins at the center position. CJ Toogood returns in the offensive line. Oli Udo's a senior as well. And then Matt Kovaleski's a junior. And a pretty uh, promising Richard freshman and Cooper Cromer takes over at the left tackle position. So Elon does have a lot of depth up front. Um, and I'd look for that to be a strength as well uh, in guiding the run game throughout the season. Last year, Elon had the CAA Offensive Rookie of the Year and quarterback Davis Cheek, and he's another guy coming back to that offense. What were your takeaways from his play in his freshman year last year, and are there a few things that you can note that you'd like to see him improve upon in his second year? Talk about a football nut. Uh, (laughs) Davis Cheek, came in last season. He was an early enrollee. So he had gone through a spring practice even before his true freshman campaign for the Phoenix last fall. But he is a guy, Brandon, that is obsessed with getting in the film room, fine-tuning every aspect of his game. He is a guy that absolutely loves the game of football and loves making himself better. And I saw him improve as the season went along, whether it was confidence in the pocket and having the ability to scramble a bit more and make some plays with his legs in addition to uh, throwing the ball around the field to a talented group of receivers. And even after that CAA Offensive Rookie of the Year honor, he has put in a lot of time in the offseason in that film room and in spring practice trying to improve upon, uh, in his own words, he wants to make his delivery quicker and smoother. Uh, so he's worked on that both in organized spring practice and off-season training sessions. And that's something that is his big focus moving forward into 2018. I'd like to see him uh, have a little more confidence to make deep throws. Uh, You know, he racked up uh, three 300-yard passing games last season uh, in games against Furman, Rhode Island, and Villanova, but they were a lot of dink and dunk plays, you know, five, six, seven-yard pickups 
but I'd like to see maybe some more explosive plays, your 20, 25, 30-yard, game-changing, drive-changing kind of plays. And I have total confidence that he'll be able to do that because he has a rocket arm. It's just a matter of gaining that confidence moving forward into 2018. And his head coach, Kurt Signetti, who was the quarterback's coach at NC State in the early 2000s, has compared Cheek to Phillip Rivers. Uh, the, the obvious connection is that they both wear the uniform number 17, but beyond that, uh, a similar delivery, uh, kind of a sidearm delivery. But as I said, Cheek is trying to bring that more over his head to get a little bit more strength and quickness uh, going into 2018. On the defensive side of the ball, where do you see the, the strength of Elon? Definitely in the linebacking core. Warren Messer, an All-American last season, first-team All-CAA, second-team All-American, and a preseason All-CAA selection in 2018. He's a tremendous leader both on and off the field and a force to be reckoned with at the middle linebacker position for the Phoenix. He's flanked by some returning talent and senior Matt Baker, TJ Spate, Tyrus Williams, expected to make contributions at the linebacking position as well for the Phoenix And then up front on the defensive line, Marcus Willoughby had a breakout season last year as a sophomore. He's a local product out of Durham, North Carolina. He led the team in sacks last season from the defensive end position. And a reason why he was able to have such a successful season is Tristan Cox, the nose tackle last season for the Phoenix as a true freshman. He's a huge guy, 330 pounds, over six feet tall. And Kurt, uh, Kurt Signetti calls him the space eater. Uh, on that defensive line and teams frequently have to double team him just because of his size and that allows Willoughby to get some penetration off the edge so I, I think Marcus Willoughby Tristan Cox make a tremendous duo on that defensive line and don't forget Daniel Everett as well the other defensive end for the Phoenix in the three three five setup uh, and if they don't get to the quarterback look out for Warren Messer but that those front six in the three three five defensive look certainly uh, have a lot of returning talent for the 2018 season and guys that I expect to continue improving as the year goes along. On October 13th, when Elon comes to Delaware, it'll be the first matchup between those two teams in two years uh, since 2015 as they were off of each other in the CAA's rotation of in-conference opponents. Uh, But, you know, kind of a good time for them to come back and face each other as both teams certainly have playoff aspirations you look at those polls, they'll get the chance to to kind of settle things midway through the season with both teams kind of having their footing underneath of them. Obviously, between now and then, a lot's going to change with both teams. But as you look at it on paper now, how do you think these two teams stack up? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting matchup. Just when you look at the Phoenix's schedule, they've got a, a murderer's row of sorts having to host New Hampshire, and then visit James Madison the last weekend of September slash first weekend of October. Then, as you mentioned, October 13th, the trip up to Newark. So that's going to be the third of the three consecutive tough CAA games to start out uh, conference play after Elon's opener against William & Mary. So in a way, it's a swing game uh, for the Phoenix because if you happen to be one and two in conference play or something worse than that, it's the kind of game that if you lose it, well, there go your playoff hopes. But by the same token, it, if you win two of three against New Hampshire and James Madison, it's a game 
that could really put you over the hump and say, okay, we're not just a contender for a conference title, but a national championship as well. And as for a matchup against Delaware, you know, obviously the Blue Hens have a talented defense, and that's something that, uh, you know, some of the elite defenses in the CAA were able to contain Davis Cheek in the running game down the stretch last season, looking at the James Madison game, for example. Uh, So I think that that's going to be a tough test for the Phoenix against the Delaware defense. I'm anxious to see what the Delaware offense looks like this season. You know, the Blue Hens at times last season had some offensive struggles, uh, but they certainly put some big games together as well in that department. Um, Elon, uh, when you look at the statistics, left a little bit to be desired defensively last year. So it's a kind of game where you want to uh, be able to stifle the Blue Hens offensively um, compared to a shootout kind of game. Uh, I think if it does get into a shootout type of game, it's probably not the best for the Phoenix, but a uh, low-scoring, grinded-out game, uh, I would not be surprised to see that in Newark. And, you know, it it could go either way. Uh, These are two teams that, as we said, a lot can change between now and then, but it should be one of the more entertaining games of the season. Thanks to Matt Krause, the color commentator for the Elon Phoenix. You can find him online at Matt Krause PXP. Delaware will face the New Hampshire Wildcats for the first time in two years on October 20th in Durham, New Hampshire. Despite a 15 to nothing loss at Albany in their regular season finale, the Wildcats extended their playoff streak to 14 straight appearances last year. At 7-4 overall and 5-3 in conference play, New Hampshire was one of the final teams into the playoffs over teams like Delaware, who had an identical record. The Wildcats made the most of their postseason appearance, defeating Central Connecticut State and number 4 Central Arkansas en route to the quarterfinals, where they lost to number 5 South Dakota State 56-14. Among the team's most important returners is three-year starter and CAA preseason Offensive Player of the Year, quarterback Trevor Knight. The Wildcats were picked to finish second in the CAA and start the season seventh in the national top 25. Mike Z is a reporter for the Portsmouth Herald and SeacoastOnline.com, where he covers UNH and other local sports. Here's my conversation with Z on one of Delaware's top opponents this season. At the end of the season, New Hampshire and Delaware both finished 7-4, and four, and yep. New Hampshire makes it in as that final CAA team, the fourth CAA playoff team, and Delaware was left on the outside looking in. I'm curious from your perspective up in New Hampshire, uh, you know, what you thought of that decision and if there were anybody, any people up there who thought that, you know, Delaware definitely should not have been in or Delaware should have been in over New Hampshire. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, up here there was some some definite concern after that that loss to Albany uh, on the last uh, day of the season that, that uh, New Hampshire was in trouble, that this would end the streak. Um they were pretty sure that if they took care of business in that game, um, you know, they'd, they'd secure that 14th straight trip to the national playoffs, and then they felt pretty good about that scenario. Uh, then they went out there and just played a very poor offensive game. We're really, really shut down. And I think, uh, you know, not so much thinking about what Delaware's chances were, I think there was just a, a pretty, you know, good concern among the fan base up here that, that this was going to be it, that UNH had cost themselves, um, you know, that playoff trip with the loss to Albany. Obviously, the next day they get in, Delaware's out. I think you make a case, you know, for either team. And I know you guys made the case very strongly, you know, down there with some some good, uh, you know, some good facts about why Delaware might have been more deserving. 
so I think the reaction overall up here was just kind of a sigh of relief and, you know, there's more football to play. Let's take advantage of it. And they, they did to a pretty large extent coming up with two playoff wins after that to over Central uh, Connecticut State and number four ranked Central Arkansas before losing in the quarterfinal to South Dakota State last year, who was one of the nation's best teams throughout all of the season. Um, you know, what was that playoff run like uh, up there in New Hampshire to pull off those two wins and make it to the quarterfinal? Yeah, I think it, it was a very uh, fortunate draw for them. I mean, not just did they get into the national playoffs, but they, they start off at home against a Central Connecticut team that's without its starting quarterback. Uh, and that played out to be a very one-sided win. And then obviously they go down to, to Central Arkansas, put together a, you know, a very good game on both sides of the ball. Uh, and so they're back in the quarterfinals. And, and then, as you mentioned, uh, you know, at South Dakota State, that's a team definitely up in weight class. Uh, and the final score showed that. Absolutely. That was a 56-14 to 14 loss. But as we head into the 2018 season, New Hampshire is ranked second in the CAA in the preseason poll on their seventh nationally in the stats FCS top 25. And obviously these polls are just a starting point and they really don't have any bearing on what will happen toward the end of the season. What were your thoughts when you saw that New Hampshire was second in the CAA poll and seventh nationally? Yeah, I mean, it typically, uh, you know, the, the last several years have, have started with New Hampshire ranked, you know, fairly high in the CIA, you know, in the national top top 15, top 20, you know, so to speak. So I, I think there's, you know, there's a general, um, you know, hope that this might be not just another good UNH team, but, but a great UNH team. And, and they really, they seem to have a lot of pieces in place, you know, as, as well as a couple of question marks heading into the season. But I think when you look at their quarterback, you know, a three-year start from Trevor Knight, a guy who can pass the ball, a guy who can, you know, he's very athletic and active, can, can get out and run too. Uh, you know, key players back in the backfield, you know, wide receiver, nine starters back on defense. Uh, I think th- there's a lot of optimism that if, if a couple things can develop, that this is a team that, that can, you know, probably, you know, make a challenge for the CAA title uh, and set themselves up for, for hopefully a long postseason run. Trevor Knight last season was ninth nationally with a little over 3,000 passing yards. He also had 26 passing touchdowns. And heading into this season, he's the CAA preseason offensive player of the year. Can you go in, I guess, the scouting reporter maybe a little bit more in his in his play style last year, and then if there's anything he can improve upon heading into this season? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Trevor Knight's just, he's the known quantity back there. I mean, he's hes a guy who came in and, and started some games as a sophomore, you know, d- developed as a junior. Uh, coaches rave about the, the spring he just had. Uh, they, they think he's continuing to improve, to see the field, to make good decisions. Uh, and they're excited for what he can do as a senior. I think the biggest concern uh, is going to be the people around him. Um, last year, UNH, not much of a running game to speak of. I think they averaged 2.7 yards a carry. Offensive line play was, you know, it was poor. It was not where it needed to be, and, and that's probably the biggest concern, you know, going into the season, you know, as it pertains to Trevor Knight, as it pertains to the offense. Can they get better offensive line play to, to bump up those rushing numbers so it's not Trevor Knight dropping back to pass 40 times a game? And can they protect him better than they did last year when they gave up 52 sacks? And it was just one of the worst figures in the nation. So I think that's the thing that has to come together, the offensive line. And if that does, I think you're going to see Trevor Knight have an outstanding season. On the defensive side of the ball, are there any strengths that you can pinpoint and perhaps any vulnerabilities on that side of the ball? Yeah, I, I think uh, strength-wise, I think it starts with the linebackers. Um, you know, Quinlan Dean was their leading tackler last year. 
Uh, Jared Keel, he's an in-state kid from from up in Plymouth, New Hampshire. You know, two real solid players right right there in the middle who are very active, who can really get to the ball, uh, tackle. I think Quinlan Dean had 124 tackles last year. It was just it was far and away the most on the team. Um, his experience back in the secondary. If there's a question mark again, maybe it's up on the line where they graduated a real good defensive tackle. You know, who who was great at plugging up that hole and stopping the run. So developing depth on the defensive line, I think, is the number one concern going into the season on defense. New Hampshire plays James Madison at home on November 3rd. If there is a way to to take down the Dukes, who, as we all know, have been the far and away leaders of this conference and among the best teams in the nation the past couple of years, you know, what will have to click right for New Hampshire? What will have to develop through the course of the season for them to go into that game at the beginning of November and you know, not only be competitive, but perhaps pull away with a win. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as as the coach would say, that's a long way away, and yeah. uh, you know, certainly a lot of things are going to happen on you know on both sides, and you know, when injuries happen and, and teams develop it at different rates, I, I think you know you, you got to expect it's going to be an excellent James Madison team coming up here. Uh, that's that's the, the cream of the league right now, and has been for a few years. That's no question the team to beat. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of weapons on on both sides of the ball coming into this season. So I think it's just some of the things we touched on early that that UNH is really focused on in the preseason. You know, th- that offensive line play, they want to get that that right line up in there, you know, and that's still something that over the next couple of weeks has to shake out. Um, they they want to make – they have a running back, Trevon Bryant, who missed all last year with an injury, uh, you know, who's back for his senior year. He was slated to take a big role last year before he got hurt. He's going to take a big role this year. You know, if he stays healthy and, and becomes the kind of runner that they they, they think they have, you know, um, to get that running game to balance out Trevor Knight's passing, that's good. If they stay healthy, you know, they, they have a lot of wide receivers that they can get the ball to. So, you know, I think what they what they want to see, you know, looking ahead to JMU and even a couple of weeks before that, looking ahead to Delaware, you right. know, which is another big game up here that that's everyone's got circled on their calendars. You know, they, they want to, you know, balance that offense. They want to, you know, make sure the defense continues to make strides, you know, develop depth on the, on the defensive line, plug up the holes on the offensive line. So I, I think those are the kinds of things that, you know, if they're doing over the first seven, eight weeks of the season, you know, and come into that, that James at Madison game, then that could be a heck of a game. Like Delaware, New Hampshire opens the season with the CAA matchup. They'll face off against Maine in their first game. And this season, Delaware opens with Rhode Island, which is not typically their first weekend opponent. But last year, New Hampshire did defeat Maine in their first game of the season. Just kind of from a philosophical perspective, having a conference game to start the year, which is typically the exception and not the norm, is there any change in approach as you lead up to the season, knowing that, yes, every game's important, but those conference games in particular and having to start with one maybe makes that first game a little bit more important? Yeah, I, I don't know if they'd come out and say it, and I don't know if it would change anything the way the coaches and players prepare, but you know, all of a sudden you're, you're jumping into it and, and you got no margin for error in that first game. It's not like you're, you know, for years, uh, New Hampshire would open up against either an FBS team where, you know, a lot of times you're, you're expected to take a loss uh, or a lightweight FCS team where, where you kind of just, uh, you know, get the kinks out and, you know, run up a big score and get the win. And now all of a sudden you've got your big rival, you know, going up to their place where they're going to have a, you know, a crazy atmosphere. And UNH main games over the years, these are close games. I mean, almost always within a score. You know, it's settled by a blocked extra point or a late field goal or something like that. So, you know, they're expecting a tough battle right out of the gate. And, and, and that makes it tough when you have a conference game uh, against a rival, your first game of the season. You lose that game, all of a sudden you're, 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 you know, you're, you're kind of chugging uphill trying to get, get back to where you want to be. So, yeah, that, that's a huge game. Right off the bat. 
you again to Mike Z of the Portsmouth Herald for joining me on the show. Follow Mike on Twitter at MikeZ603. That's MikeZHE603. Moving on to Delaware's next opponent, the Towson Tigers. Towson put a thorn in Delaware's playoff chances when they pulled off an 18-17 upset win over the Hens with three weeks to go in the regular season. Towson went on to win two of their final three games to finish the year 5-6 and six overall and 3-5 and five in CAA play. The Tigers, who have not made the playoffs since 2013, enter 2018 picked to finish 10th in the conference. Running back Shane Simpson is among Towson's leading returners as 10-year head coach Rob Ambrose looks for his first star running back since Towson all-time leading rusher Terrence West moved on to the NFL in 2014. Karuga Kwananja is the editor-in-chief of the Tower Light, Towson University's student newspaper. He joins me now on the Delaware Football Roundup to preview the Towson Tigers. Just in a general sense, heading into this season, what are your expectations for Towson football? Well, I think this year is going to be really interesting because probably the most compelling storyline going into the season is the quarterback competition. Uh, Last year, we had uh, Oregon transfer Morgan Mihalik. He came in and he was kind of supposed to be the guy, and he actually went down in the first contest of the season. Um, and it was later revealed that he was actually concussed for the whole year, and he won't be playing this season, it appears, either. So we started a freshman, uh, Ryan Stover, who looked decent at times, but also, as uh, our head coach, Rob Ambrose, even said, he did play like a freshman sometimes. So I guess just finding that guy at quarterback is really going to be the biggest tell of how this team is going to perform this season. But, uh, you know, went five and six last year, uh, did close out the season while winning the last two games. But I think there's a lot of pressure on the team to really improve. Uh, haven't really done too much in the past few seasons. And, uh, you know, they had a couple of interesting uh, offseason signings. So I look for probably at least a three game improvement over the season. But that quarterback competition is really going to be something to watch out for. Are there any other candidates right now that you think could or perhaps will unseat Ryan Stover for that job? Well, (laughs) it's funny. Uh, Looking at the roster, it's kind of a who's who of quarterbacks. Uh, There's seven quarterbacks listed on the roster right now. Um, Stover, I I don't assume that he's just going to be given the job going into the season. I think it's sort of an open competition. Uh, Training camp just started two days ago. Um, you have Tom Flacco, uh, Joe Flacco's brother, actually, who came in. He's now a redshirt junior, uh, just transferred. So we'll see if maybe uh, he can be a guy. Uh, Tristan Harris was a guy who was on the roster last season. He actually did get some playing time. Um, I think they were just kind of just trying a lot of different things last season to see who performs the best. So it's pretty much an open competition as far as I as far as I can see. Another name that grabs me on the offensive side of the ball looking from the outside in is the running back Shane Simpson, who a couple mm-hmm. years ago, 2016, was CAA Offensive Rookie of the Year. He's been a prolific kick returner through his career and has earned a lot of accolades for that. Um, but do you see him becoming more of a centerpiece or focal point of the offense as a running back? Uh, you know, a guy who started his career at wide receiver, but is kind of that shifty scat back out of the running, out of the backfield guy. Um, do you see yeah. him making an impact that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think he can have a really good season. Uh, it's sort of interesting. Um, kind of looking at the team over the last few years, 
ever since Terrence West, uh, I think they've kind of been trying to find that guy. They've sort of done a little bit of running back by committee, um, putting in a few guys. Shane has definitely looked the best out of everyone. Um, I think if they can focus on him more, because last season it seemed like the offense didn't have too much of an identity. And I think part of that issue was just uh, a lot of injuries on the O-line. So there was some inconsistency there. So um, sometimes they were run first. A lot of times they were throwing the ball. Uh, They didn't really have much of an identity. But I think if they can key in on a few players like Shane, like you mentioned, uh, I think they can be very successful this season. Are there any other players, whether they be skill guys or along the offensive line on the offensive ball, that stand out to you as players who could take a big leap forward this year? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, wide receiver Shane Leatherberry uh, can be someone who's impactful. Uh, talking to uh, Coach Ambrose last season a lot, they're still really looking for that go-to receiver, and I think that's part of the reason that uh, Ryan had a hard time transitioning. Of course, he's a freshman, so he's going to struggle a little bit, but not having a guy that you can just throw the ball to as kind of a safety blanket um, can be difficult. So I think Shane can step up. Uh, Jabari Greenwood is another nice tall receiver who I think they can implement more in the passing game, especially deep passing game, if they're able to get or keep their offensive line healthy and uh, they can hold up to implement some more deep passing plays. So I think those are two guys you can kind of look out for. What are this team's strengths when you look at the defensive side of the ball? Are there any position groups or players that stick out to you there? Yeah, I would say probably uh, the biggest biggest guy there uh, would be Monty Fenner. Uh, safety in his senior year, um, led the team in interceptions last year, just three interceptions, but still uh, was all over the field making plays, uh, got a good amount of pass deflections. And just watching him on the field, he really does a great job of just patrolling the secondary, making sure that people are where they need to be. And that's important now because a lot of the cornerbacks now are – uh, I'm pretty much just in their freshman or sophomore years. So I think he's really going to have to step up. Uh, Zane Harps, Upshore, uh, defensive lineman. I look for him to step up a lot this year. Had three and a half sacks last season. And we had a lot of uh, fifth-year linemen graduate. in uh, Deshaun Cummings and Clifton Jones, those were some really talented players. So I think Zane is going to be the guy to kind of step up and fill that role. <laughs> um, and then as far as just linebackers go, uh, Keon Pei has always been a really solid player, and uh, DeAndre Wallace. Uh, those two are some really nice, fast, athletic linebackers who can really get after it. So uh, there's talent all over, but uh, there's also a lot of young pieces that we still haven't really seen. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see how they kind of blend together. I'm going to take you back to last season for a little bit in talking about the Towson win over Delaware last October. <laughs> On the 28th, which was probably Towson's best win of the season. And for Delaware, there were still three weeks left in the season, but it was a huge loss. And it's really one of the two losses that prevented them from getting into the playoffs. Heading into that game against the Tigers, Delaware was 5-2 and overall. They were 3-1 and in the conference. So had they won that game, they would have had a nice little safety blanket heading into their final push of the season. But from Towson's perspective in that one, it's a huge win. Was there anything that they were able to take from that game, particularly when you then look at the end of the season, they were able to close a couple weeks later with back-to-back wins in the season? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that one that one was huge. Uh, Ambrose uh, was talking about how it was just 
totally, uh, you know, impactful as far as the confidence of the players. I remember um, this really interesting quote he said uh, after the game. He said that that sort of a win kind of takes a sledgehammer to the glass ceiling in those guys' minds. And that seems like it's really what it did. Uh, unfortunately, the next week they did lose, but they played a really tough double overtime game against Elon. Um, I think that win really gave them just just a lot of confidence, especially winning in that kind of dramatic fashion. Stover, obviously, with the game-winning pass with just under 30 seconds remaining. And uh, wide receiver Sam Gallahan made the one-handed catch. Amazing catch. Game. Yep. <laughs> it was insane. Um so I think that win really did give him a lot of confidence. Uh, I think that did help him kind of make a late season surge. Uh, and hopefully they can carry some of that momentum into this season, winning back-to-back games, like you mentioned. Is there anything to the idea of the like I-95 rivalry, if you will, between these two teams? You know, the, you know it's mentioned all the time, every game broadcast you hear about Towson versus mm. Delaware. Oh, they're, you know, 20 miles or whatever it is apart from each other. Um, but, you know, from Towson's perspective, in any way, do you view Delaware as a rival or is it another game on the schedule? Mm-hmm. To be totally honest, uh, the way they play, um, it doesn't seem like there's too much animosity or it doesn't seem like there's much of a rivalry. It's really interesting you say that, though. Actually, last season uh, when uh, we played Maryland um, on the road, so at Maryland, uh, they were getting really chippy. And there were a couple of former Towson athletes on Maryland's team and vice versa. So uh, that was probably the game where I saw the biggest uh, real fight and kind of just that, that tenacity and animosity to get after it. But um, as far as Delaware goes, it doesn't seem like there's that same tension. There is definitely a good incentive to beating uh, you know, a team that's kind of closer to home. But uh, there doesn't seem to be a huge uh, uptick in, you know, kind of animosity when they play. This season, the Hens will play the Tigers on the 27th, so same time of the year, but it'll be in Newark. Um, looking on that at that game on paper, obviously it's a long way away, and a lot of mm-hmm. things will change on both sides. But, you know, what are your impressions or kind of early thoughts on that matchup in the end of October? Well, I think that's going to be really interesting, um, not just because of the timing of that game, but uh, who they play uh, pretty much in that month. Um, they are going to take on four, I believe, of the top five teams in the preseason polls. Uh, during that stretch, they host Stony Brook, then Delaware, will play Elon, and then also James Madison. Um, I think it's going to be a really interesting matchup. Uh, one thing that's kind of uh, I've taken note of is um, you know, preseason polls obviously are <laughs> a little bit subjective, I guess I could say. Um, but it's funny. Coach Ambrose really likes to use that as fuel. Towson was only picked, I believe, 10th in the preseason polls. And he's been kind of emphasizing that and wanting to use that as fuel. So I think it's going to be interesting uh, during that stretch, Delaware being one of, uh, one of the better ranked teams, I believe, uh, seeing how they match up. Uh, I think the momentum from last year's win uh, can maybe play a role in that. And we'll just kind of have to see how it goes. Thank you, Kruga. You can find his team's work at thetowerlight.com.
It was a disappointing 2017 season for the Albany Great Danes, who slid down the CAA ranks, finishing third to last in the conference, a year after finishing 7-4 and narrowly missing out on the FCS playoffs. The Great Danes under head coach Greg Gattuso start the 2018 season ranked ninth in the CAA poll. They hope to have star running back Elijah Ibatokin Hanks returning. The redshirt junior who rushed for 1,388 yards in 2016 tore his ACL in the season finale of that year and played in just one game in 2017. He's expected to be back at full strength along with backup running back Carl Mofer to make up one of the CAA's top running back duos. Delaware will face the Great Danes November 3rd in Albany. Joining me from the Daily Gazette is reporter Michael Kelly. To me, the player that jumps right out when you look at the Albany roster heading into this season is running back Elijah Ibatokin Hanks. Uh, and I just a couple of days ago read your story from earlier this month, or it might have been late July, kind of resetting with him after his injury where he missed most of last season following the torn ACL at the end of two seasons ago. He is a transformational player based on what he did two years ago, 1,388 rushing yards, 16 touchdowns. What what has his progress been to this point, and what are your expectations for him heading into 2018? Yeah, I, I, that's probably like the million-dollar question for them. Um, you know, to this point, he looked pretty good in spring ball, and this summer he's looked, you know, a lot like 2016 uh, Elijah Hanks. Um You know, and I, I he's probably somebody you got to give him, you know, maybe like those first three games to kind of see – what he's going to look like, you know, probably by the time Albany and Delaware face off in uh, early November, um, you know, we'll have a really good idea kind of what level he's at. Um, you know, I think Albany's expectation is that he's 2016 version or at least pretty close to it. And to give an idea to our listeners, you know, what that looks like, can you describe his running style? You know, what allowed him to excel in 2016, where again, he was one of the best running backs in the CAA Sure. I mean, he's a guy who has, you know, quick burst and, you know, back in 2016, he, he was capable of breaking tackles. Um, and probably the thing that's the most interesting to see for him this upcoming year is that, you know, he really, you know, nobody's really seen him in, you know, about 20 months on a game field. Um, besides the, the one time he played last year, he's probably gained about 15 pounds since two years ago, you know, just kind of like the normal weight training stuff. Um, so he's now even like a bigger guy. He's, you know, like a 5'9", five, 5'10", five, uh, running back who's now like 210 pounds or so. Um, so he's a pretty imposing runner um, that's, you know, has good initial burst and, and he's harder to bring down, um, you know, once he's, you know, past the, the, the line of scrimmage basically. In the backfield, they also have uh, Carl Mofer, who last year stepped in for Elijah because of the injury. Does he bring, you know, any kind of extra dynamic to that backfield? And do they have ways that they want to utilize both of those guys? Yeah, so Carl Mofer, he's a pretty similar running style to EB Token Hanks. Um, maybe not as explosive uh, quickness-wise. Um, and they've pretty much said this preseason, they kind of expect those guys to split carries, um, you know, this upcoming season. And they've, we, we haven't seen it in practice. They've talked about using both of them at the same time. 
Um, it sounds like if they do that, that maybe you would see Mofor uh, out in like the slot, um, you know, kind of playing a little bit of a receiver role. He's the better pass catcher uh, of the two running backs. Gotcha. And then going to the pass catchers, too, just a couple days ago, the news broke that Austin Ellis, who is projected to be a starting receiver for this team, would miss the year with a torn ACL. Uh, my next question is going to be about the quarterbacks, which is a you know separate competition of its own. But at the wide receiver position, um, you know, are there contributors there that you expect to step up in a guy like Ellis's absence? Uh, and, you know, what were the expectations for him that they'll have to sort of replace here as we lead into the season? Yeah, Ellis was kind of – he was going to be like the steady guy in the passing game, you know, a reliable pass catcher, um, you know, maybe not necessarily a big play threat, but good on third downs. Um, they don't necessarily have anybody who – you know, fits right into that role. Um, kind of without him, it's a lot of unproven athletes, but, you know, there's a lot of athleticism, a lot of explosive uh, ability. Um, probably the, the guy who's most interesting to watch there is actually a freshman, uh, Dev Holmes, uh, who initially was committed to Villanova and then was uh, he, he switched to Albany kind of late in the process. Um, he's looking like he'll probably start at wide receiver as a freshman, um, and he was already kind of bidding for that before Ellis went down. And then at the quarterback position, a couple weeks ago you had a story about it being a three-way competition heading into camp between Will Brunson, who was last year's starter, the redshirt senior Vincent Testaverde, and a redshirt sophomore Nick Burns. Is there... Any update on the progress of those three and, you know, any indication that the coaching staff might be leaning one way or the other? Right. I guess to start, it's only it, it's pretty much just nominally a three-way competition. Nick Burns is competing, but he's he's clearly number three. Okay. Um, and, and Brunson and Testaverde are, are, are really the ones who are competing. Um, at this point, it seems pretty clear that it's leaning toward Testaverde. Um, who who is who is the son of Vinny? Mm-hmm. Um, that that'll probably be it, one way or another. It's going to be made official this Saturday, whether or not it's Testaverde or Brunson. Um, as of early this week, uh, you know they're still one and one a, but it's it's pretty clear that uh, Testaverde is, is ahead. And is there anything in particular that caused Testaverde to jump past Brunson, who again was last year's starter? Uh, well, I mean, Testaverde was here last year, just just unable to play, um, and they were excited about you know getting him when they got him last year, and he was able to practice, um, you know, so he knows kind of what the expectations are. Um, he, he has a bigger arm than Brunson, um, and Brunson, you know, had a decent start to last year, but but really trailed off those last three or four games. Um, and pretty much in spring ball, Testaverde started to vault past him, and that's continued this summer. Now moving to the defensive side of the ball, uh, are there any clear strengths of this defense that you look at, on paper at least at this point in the lead-up to the season, that will be clear-cut? You have a couple of guys established in those roles, and then on the other hand, are there areas of weakness where the team will kind of be searching for answers as we lead up to and throughout the season? Sure. I mean, the, the strength is the defensive line. Um, you know, probably the guy who's going to be the kind of the breakout star there is uh, Brian Dolce, who's been a nice contributor for them the last couple of years and, you know, should probably be the main guy on that defensive line going forward. But but besides that, they've got 
you know, you only has probably six or seven guys. They're going to feel pretty comfortable rotating on that defensive line. Um, there's not really a lot of uh, difference between the, the first string and the second string there. Um, Weakness-wise, the injury has really hit their secondary. Um, they lost Mason Gray, who was, uh, started the last two years at safety. Um, they've also lost, uh, you know, kind of a, a depth guy recently uh, in the secondary. So, so that's going to that's still being retooled. Um, Linebacker-wise, too, is another position where, um, you know, they have they have Eli Menser back. Um, besides that, there's n- pretty much nobody else who had, you know, game experience at that position. Uh, you know, going back to last year. From the perspective of being here in Delaware, and this might kind of be off, but when you look at Albany on paper and you look at their record the last couple of years, they're never necessarily one of the worst teams in the CAA, but they haven't at the same time been a consistent threat. You don't look at them as the top of the CAA either. And last year they were 4-7, and seven. the year before the opposite 7-4, and four. Uh, and a lot of that does have to do with the injuries we discussed earlier, but you know, is there a key for this team or a set of things that need to happen for them to vault from being that kind of middle-of-the-road CAA team into a contending CAA team? Um, and is that something that you know is hap- could happen this year or three years, five years down the road? Right. I think the thing for your, the big thing for them is uh, is quarterback play. You know, I, I don't these last few seasons they really just haven't had any consistent production at that, at that position from game to game um and, and you know if you just look at their you know their game scores um you know they lose a lot of close games a lot of low scoring games um so if testaverde is able to come in and you know he doesn't need to be a star but if he's able to you know just provide consistent production um you know that would be a lo- that would go a long way toward you know, them kind of vaulting past those expectations this year where, you know, they were picked ninth and maybe they could, you know, contend for the fourth or the fifth spot. Definitely. And when you look, again, this is one of the later season matchups when we're talking about Albany versus Delaware. But when you look at that matchup, you know, do you think of that or do you think maybe the team thinks of that as, you know, an important game late in the season if they are in position to challenge for a playoff spot or challenge for, you know, high ranking in the CAA on paper? Is that something that's maybe circled or looked at for this team? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, probably not at this point um, because it is, you know, so late in the season. But I think when you look at Albany's schedule, Delaware comes to them in early November. Um, you know, realistically, if Albany is going to make, you know, any noise and, uh, you know, trying to make it to the postseason – that's probably a game they need to win. That's probably one of the you know the games against the better teams in the league that they'd have to get since it's at their place. Um, so, you know, what, I'd imagine when that week comes around, that has you know pretty good potential to be a make or break game for you, Albany. Thank you to Michael Kelly for joining the show. You can follow him on Twitter at ByMichaelKelly and find his work at DailyGazette.com where he has a lot of excellent preseason Albany football coverage. In their final road game of the regular season, the Blue Hens will face off against the Stony Brook Seawolves on November 10th. 
Last year at Stony Brook, Delaware came away with their best win of the season, coming back from a halftime 20-7 deficit to win 24-20. The win vaulted the Hens into the top 25 for the first time in the Danny Rocco era. After the loss in their sixth game of the season, Stony Brook went on to post an impressive 9-2 regular season record and tied a school record 10 wins after reaching the FCS quarterfinals. Despite losing starters on both sides of the ball, the Seawolves, under 14-year head coach Chuck Priori, entered the season ranked 4th in the CAA preseason poll and 20th in the Stats FCS Top 25. Josh Carey is the play-by-play announcer of the Stony Brook Seawolves. He joins me now on the Delaware Football Roundup. Stony Brook was picked third in the CAA preseason poll coming off of a school record, tying a school record with 10 wins, a 10-3 and record last season. They're just a spot behind Delaware, who was picked second in the preseason poll. Uh, but after finishing above Delaware, do you feel like Stony Brook was disrespected at all with that third-plus ranking, or is that a pretty appropriate place for the Seawolves heading into 2018? I was actually pleasantly surprised by it. Uh, you have a team that's lost a bunch of seniors from last season and uh while the depth is there they're certainly going to have going to be several holes to fill for the Seawolves this season so I was actually pleasantly surprised by what the uh what the voters chose to put the Seawolves at but one thing I have learned about the CAA is very rarely do you see a lot of uh movement from the end of last season to the preseason polls of the next year so you know, I don't know how much stock you really put into it, but to to, put, to shortly answer your question, I don't think the guys are disrespected at all. I think it's um, a pretty lofty position to be in the top three of such a, an elite conference, and I think the guys are excited for uh, the opportunity. Last year, Stony Brook was one of those teams that was ranked lower in the CAA preseason poll and maybe exceeded a lot of people's expectations across the league, ending up uh, second in the league, making a quarterfinal appearance in the playoffs. Uh, they do have holes, and we'll talk about some positions where this team needs to improve or fill in for seniors who have graduated. But at an overall sense, you know, this is a good time for Seawolves fans. You know, what what were your general attitude or feeling toward last season? You know, a pretty exciting season for Stony Brook. Yeah, you know, it was a step in the right direction. I know Coach Priori, ever since the team moved from the Big South to the Colonial, it was sort of their mission to do exactly what they did last year. And when they made that jump, it really was a uh, – he really had to start restart the program, if you will. And last year was the culmination of all that hard work over the past five seasons. Uh, there have been some ups. There have been a lot of downs as well. But, you know, they finally got it all together last year. And I think what's even better is over that five-year span, he's also – put together a lot of depth to where you can look at Stony Brook as a yearly contender to getting into the postseason. So mission accomplished, and hopefully it's just the start of things to come. This team last year graduated 19 seniors. They do have 14 returning starters, including eight on the offensive side of the ball. Um, but if you can, kind of highlight the the groups that maybe have been hit the hardest by the departing seniors and if there are any players that you see that could step up into those holes for Stony Brook this year? Uh, well, probably the the position that was really hit hard was wide receiver. Uh, Harrison Jackson and Ray Bolden both departed due to graduation. And so uh, that's probably the spot that's been hit the hardest. But again, I talk about the depth that Coach Priori has built 
within the program. Uh, Ray got hurt toward the end of last season. And so there were a bunch of guys who were able to step up younger guys toward the end of the season. Nick Anderson and Andrew Trent, just to name a couple. He was able to go out and get Marshall Ellick from Temple University, which, uh, you know, is a nice little boon for the Seawolves as well to give Joe Carbone someone to go to. So it was a spot that was hit hard, but it's not a spot that is necessarily in dire straits either. Um, so I would say that was probably the biggest position hit. I also n- saw uh, a note in the Stony Brook Seawolves season preview on their site that five seniors graduated from the secondary. Is that a spot on the defensive end, you know, kind of of the three levels that has been hit the hardest? Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely the, the area on the defensive side of the ball that's uh, – probably the biggest level of concern and unlike the receivers on the offensive side of the ball there weren't that many uh guys too many backups that played in the secondary so I think that is going to be a glaring weakness especially early on um frankly we're not going to really know a whole lot about the secondary until they begin summer practice which actually begins uh tomorrow August uh August 3rd so that that is right now a big question mark for the guys heading into the season. The good news, though, is so many teams in the Colonial are run-oriented that, you know, unless you're facing a Richmond-esque type of team, and Richmond, of course, has lost their quarterback, right. um, unless you're facing something like that, it's uh, you can you can mask it a little bit. And fortunately, there are plenty of returning starters along the front line and the linebacking core to help make up that. Yeah, last year, Stony Brook was one of the best at defending the run, 2.7 yards per rush. They were 11th in the nation at 97 rushing yards per game, and they bring back uh, kind of most of that front, I believe, from from last season. Is that still the strength of this defense? It sounds like it is. Well, the defense as a whole is an elite unit, and it's something they take a lot of pride in. Stony Brook has always been one of the top defensive teams, uh, not just in the conference, but in the country. And so you ought to feel pretty good about that overall. We got Noah McGinty and Shane Lawless returning at the linebacking spot. Uh, John Haggard and Josh Valentin will return along the front line. And so you feel pretty good about that overall. And I don't think there's a whole lot to be too concerned about as long as you don't face a pass-oriented team that can exploit a rather green secondary. Then on to the offensive side of the ball, Joe Carbone is maybe the biggest returner just for the pure fact he plays quarterback, the most important position there. Uh, But he was also pretty good last season, third among returning CAA passers in passer rating, up over 2,000 passing yards last season, over 20 passing touchdowns last season. Um, You know, he'll be dealing with a new wide receiver group, as you mentioned. But, you know, what's kind of the general feeling going into his senior season around Joe Carbone and maybe the expectations for him? this season well i mean i think the biggest thing that the reason why joe was able to excel last season is he started playing with himself he didn't get you know i think a lot of guys when they become quarterbacks they envision themselves as you know another ben roethlisberger or peyton manning a guy who can throw for three four hundred yards a game and lead the team to victory and that's just not what the seawolves do stony brook is a run between the tackles type of team take care of the ball pick up the third and five on a nice underneath route or an out pattern, something like that, and just play consistent football. Maybe not the most exciting brand, but certainly a consistent brand. And I think once Joe was able to wrap his head around that 
and see himself as a part of the offense as opposed to the um, the star, if you will. I think once he got his head around that, it really uh, reflected in his play, and he relaxed because he realized he didn't have to do as much as he thought he did. So the fact that he was able to put that together last year and that he's now heading into a senior campaign, he ought to feel pretty good about himself. Are there any players in particular around him in that skill position group that stick out to you as kind of who's going to be his his go-to target on the offense? Well, again, we've lost a couple of receivers, so there's going to be uh, – that'll be an interesting uh, development during summer camp. But, I, I, again, I think Marshall Ella coming from uh, Temple is going to be a big pickup. And then, you know, Andrew Trent and uh, Nick Anderson each made strides last year at the receiving position. So it's going to be one of those three. Uh, we have another kind of scat back who likes to move out of the backfield named uh, Seba Niket who will see a lot of playing time as well. He could be someone coming out of the backfield. And he's got a pretty experienced tight end in Cal Daniels. So uh, he's going to have several options to choose from. He might not have a um, a star or a playmaking type as a Ray Bolden or a Harrison Jackson, but he's still going to have a – He's still going to have a pretty talented core of receivers to uh, throw to, and if he can just mix it around a little bit, he should have a pretty effective season. Last year for the Blue Hens, one of their biggest, if not their biggest, win came against Stony Brook in a close 24-20 to win on the road, and that, for Delaware, kind of propelled them into their second half of the season where until the last couple of weeks they were really on a hot streak and put their name up there amongst the contenders in the CAA but for Stony Brook after that game you know they they didn't falter they still finished the season strong finished above Delaware in the standings and eventually made it to the CAA playoffs as we've mentioned is there anything in, you know months after the fact that stands out to you about Stony Brook's response to that Delaware game well I think the big thing that happened with that game is the guys didn't get down on themselves and you know, Coach Priori is a pretty emotional man, yet he was in a surprisingly good mood following that game just because, you know, he felt his team played well enough to win. Um, and unfortunately, there were a couple of bizarre plays that happened. I remember one of uh, the Delaware D-backs returned a fumble for a touchdown. And, you know, there were a couple of other odd plays. There was an interception that Stony Brook could have returned for six. And the turf monster reached up and grabbed Noah McGinty. So it was just, it was an odd game. It was a game that, if I recall correctly, Stony Brook actually uh, won the uh, field position battle and the yardage battle, but the big plays went against them. And right. so when you went, when you looked at the end of that ball game and you looked at the stats, it really didn't match up with the score. So overall, the guys still felt good about themselves, even though they were disappointed in the loss. Um, they still felt confident enough that they should have won the game and that they could win the rest of their games on their schedule. And that's exactly what they did until James Madison. My thanks to Josh Carey, the play-by-play voice of the Stony Brook Seawolves. You can follow him on Twitter at Seawolf Voice and hear him on Stony Brook Seawolves action all throughout the fall. My final guest comes from Villanova University. The Blue Hens will once again complete their season with a matchup against the Villanova Wildcats. The Wildcats have taken six straight Battle of the Blue trophies and 11 of the last 12 meetings between the two teams. 
Last year, Villanova thwarted the Blue Hens' playoff chances with a 28-7 win in the final game of the regular season. It was perhaps the Blue Hens' best chance to down the Wildcats since the Battle of the Blue Moniker was given to the game in 2007, as Villanova was hampered by injuries throughout the season and finished 2017 a lackluster 5-6 overall and 3-5 in CAA play. This year, the Wildcats enter as the sixth best team according to the CAA preseason poll, led by returners Zach Bednarczyk at quarterback and safety Rob Roll, both of which missed the majority of last season with injury. Joining me to discuss the Wildcats and the final game of the Blue Hens regular season is Nick France, a reporter for the Villanovan, Villanova University student newspaper. I think a good place to start would be kind of going right back to the end of last season for both of these teams, the 28-7 to win by Villanova over Delaware, which was their sixth straight Battle of the Blue championship, if you will, um, but marked their 11th win in the last 12 games between these two teams. And for Delaware, ended their season right there, a game that Delaware was favored to win. Had they won, they would have been all but assuredly into the FCS playoffs, but with the loss, they fell just short uh, at 7-4 and four overall in the season. Villanova mm-hmm. successfully playing spoiler there. You know, obviously Villanova's season, and we'll get to it, did not go the way they wanted to last year. Much of that attributed to injuries. But how did that kind of feel for the team to stamp the season with a spoiler against their rival and holding Delaware out of the playoffs? Well, you know, winning those rivalry games is always a big deal, even if, you know, your season's, you know, not going the way you want it. And, you know, after losing all these games that some of them they probably should have won and probably felt good you know it definitely felt good that they're able to cap off the season in a game that they weren't supposed to win against you know their biggest rival and even if and not and knocked them out of the playoffs and so you know obviously that was a big moment for the team and that's something that they want to build on and that was a great you know Aaron Forbes running a lot running a lot you know he's hoping to carry that into the next into this season because he's the captain this season and you know that was just a big if that was a big turnaround for the season, even if it was the uh, you know only final game. Right, and one thing that you hear a lot of about with teams is wanting to carry any type of momentum from the previous season to the next, or you know from the previous yeah, season into the off season. Uh, and it, you know it sounds like, especially for somebody like Aaron Forbes, who ran all over the Blue Hens. Uh, or that's the, mm-hmm. the, the defense that basically held Delaware scoreless. I mean, they scored one touchdown, but it was with yeah. less than a minute left in that game. Uh, yeah. You know, that's that's some significant momentum to carry into a year where, you know, we'll talk about it. They'll have a lot of guys coming back. Yeah. You know, that's always, you know, what you want to do. And that's definitely what they're planning on. Like I talked to Aaron Forbes, you know, before, uh, you know, the end of the year, uh, before the end of the academic year, I talked to him after he was named captain. And uh, clearly that game, you know, still meant a lot to him because it showed that, you know, it was a good way to end the season. And that's, you know, you evaluate yourself based on, and you evaluate yourself and your team based on, you know, the most recent outing. And, you know, to that, to that point, you know, that was the last game that he played. And so that 140 yards is still fresh in his mind. And so he's hoping to carry that in the next season. As we kind of zoom out, last year Del or excuse me, Villanova was five and six overall. They finished three and five in conference play. Before that Delaware season finale win, they had lost four straight games and had scored just six total points in the previous two games leading up to the Delaware game. 
Uh, it was the first season for Mark Ferranti, who spent 30 years as an assistant coach to head coach Andy Talley, who retired with one of the more storied careers, if not the most storied career in CAA history. But obviously things did not go the way that Villanova hoped. They were ranked within the top 10 nationally heading into the season, one of the top CAA contending teams. And things really fell apart, especially after week four, where they lost probably their top contributor on offense and their co- top contributor mm-hmm. on defense in quarterback Zach Bednarczyk and safety Rob Roll, who was yeah. last season's CAA Defensive Player of the Year. Those two guys both coming back this year, but obviously were huge losses last year that Villanova was really unable to overcome. You know, First off, kind of what went wrong last year in those spots and then mm-hmm. spinning it forward, what do you expect from both of those players next season? Well, starting with the offense, obviously losing your starting quarterback is, you know, always a big deal. And that should, you know, lead to more losses. But what really hurt them was the fact that after losing him, they didn't really have a consistent backup. You know, Kyle McCloskey, who transferred away, and Jack, uh, I could never pronounce his name right. Shetlick, something like that. Shetlick. <laughs> <laughs> I had a tongue twister oh, yeah. at that uh, in week yeah. week twelve last year, or whatever it was. Yeah, I could never get it right. I, you know, but uh, Jack uh, Shetlich, um, uh, you know, both of them started different games. You know, Kyle Mfosky would come off the bench sometimes if one of them wasn't playing well. And that quarterback carousel, you know, that never is good for a team. You know, it's better to have a consistent quarterback, and they really didn't have that once they lost Ben Archie because neither of those. Young, younger quarterbacks really had what it takes to play yet. And uh, that really showed in their passing offense after that because, you know, following that, you know, like you said, they would barely score in games. You know, their passing offense finished second, you know, in the conference. And a lot of that, you know, also hurt by losing Matt Goodzak in uh, the Albany game as well, you know, and the uh, whatnot. And then on the defensive side with Rob Roll, you know, he's a big leader with that on that defense. He was the captain last season. He's the captain this season. And he was clearly a leader in that locker room. And to lose your biggest leader on the defensive side, that's always a, um, an adverse situation for your team, but especially when it's someone as talented as Rob Roll. But, you know, having him back to move on to that is definitely going to be good, you know, and Losing the two corners who uh, graduated, uh, Malik Reeves and Trey Johnson, you know, that'll help the development of the young secondary to have, you know, Rob Roll there to help teach them and lead them. And uh, with Ben Nart to return back to Ben Narchik, you know, having him back will definitely improve the passing offense because this season, God forbid, another injury, <laughs> um, he'll, the passing offense, you know, definitely won't be second to last in the conference. Um, uh, at least I, at least I hope. Because with Zach Benarchik back, you know, you'll have that consistent quarterback. You'll have that leader. He's named captain this season, which he wasn't last year. And that just shows how much his teammates respect him and how much of a leader he is in that locker room. And that'll always help with the new cap, you know, better running game, hopefully better passing game as a result of that better running game. And, you know, it's always good to have your, your team leaders back. Benarchik was in his third year as a starter last year now. That's kind of the extra, you know, one more year. 267 passing yards a game last year, well over 2,000 passing yards each of the last couple of years. He's been one of the best quarterbacks in the CAA, kind of in that second class, Mm -hmm. if you will, behind like a Kyle Lalletta who gets drafted by the New York Giants, but certainly a big guy for them to get back. 
Um, on the defensive side of the ball, we talked about Rob Roll gets an extra year because of the injury last year. But they do yeah. lose a lot of big names. You mentioned Malik Reeves and Trey Johnson, the corners. They also will lose Ed Shockley, the man in the middle, who was yeah. all over the place. I mean, I think in every game I watched of Villanova's, the guy had 10-plus tackles. Uh, yeah, you know, is there any way to replace him? <laughs> um, you know, it's always hard to replace someone who gets 10 tackles a game. But uh, named captain this year, Jeff Steeb, who played alongside him most of these years, and I think I'm pretty sure they'll be moving him in to where Ed Shockley played, maybe not every down, but a lot of downs. And so they're hoping that Jeff Steeb, who you know played very well last season in a different role, will be able to move into that role and do the same as uh, Ed Shockley did. But it's always hard to replace a player uh, at the caliber of Ed Shockley. So uh, we're going to have to see how that goes. Um, but then as to talk about those corners, you mentioned Malik Reeves and Trey Johnson, who both went off to the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, uh you know, they'll be replaced by some younger cornerbacks. Like last season, true freshman uh, Jaquan Amos played some downs every now and then. And uh, he looked very good getting some interceptions throughout the year. I forget the exact number of how many. Uh, but, uh, you know, hoping that that, that young secondary and uh, Jeff Steve in a new role will be able to fill the roles that were uh, left void by the players off the NFL. Kind of taking things full circle now, we opened up by discussing last season's Villanova-Delaware game in which Villanova upset the Blue Hens. This season, as it typically is, the final game of the year this year at UD, it's going to be an important game most likely for the Blue Hens, but it could also be for Villanova, ranked sixth, but as we mentioned, getting a lot of guys back. You know, it's the last game of the season, so a lot of different things are going to change between now and then. But as you look at it on paper now, any expectations um, or just kind of thoughts on that matchup late in the season between Delaware and Villanova? You know, that's always going to be an important matchup. These are two quality teams that are always in the playoff run. And that's why it's such a big rivalry because not only is it, you know, the proximity and, the, you know, the battle, the blue mystique about it, but it's also the fact that there's always going to be playoff spots on the line in that game. And so I definitely think that this year's matchup could be very intriguing, especially if Villanova takes a big jump from last season with, you know, Bronte's second year and he has a better idea of how he wants to coach this team. You know, a lot of players coming back and less injuries. And so while I think Delaware is definitely going to be contending for a playoff spot by then and hopefully Villanova will be as well, I think that's going to be a very intriguing matchup at the end of the season. It always is. You can follow Nick France at Frenchman Sports on Twitter and read him at Villanovan.com. Once again, my thanks to all of our guests, starting with Kevin Tresselini of the News Journal and Delaware Online, Stone Freeman of WRIU, our very own Nick Canella, Matt Kraus, the color commentator for the Elon Phoenix, Mike Z of the Portsmouth Herald, Baruka Kunanja of the Tower Light, Michael Kelly of the Daily Gazette, Josh Carey, the play-by-play announcer for the Stony Brook Seawolves, and Nick France, reporter for the Villanovan. 
My name is Brandon Halvek. We'll have another Delaware Football Roundup season preview podcast out just before Delaware's season opener against Rhode Island on August 30th. And Blue Hen Sports Gauge will be making its return shortly. Keep an eye on our Twitter account at WVUD Sports and our Facebook page at WVUD Sports for the latest updates. Again, thank you for listening. This has been the Delaware Football Roundup Season Preview CAA Roundup. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you soon.